morning, everyone. Welcome to day 17 of the 7 a.m. novelist March March Writing Challenge. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Today, we hear from authors Alicia Abbott and Lisa Haynes about handling reality and invention in your fiction and nonfiction. Good morning, you two. Good morning. morning. Thank you so much for being on the show. Lisa Haynes' fifth novel, Book of Knives, was out by Source Books in 2022. Her four earlier books are When We Disappear, Girl in the Arena, a 2011 South Carolina Book Award nominee, optioned by HBO. That's exciting. Uh, (laughs) Small Acts of Sex and Electricity, named a Book Sense pick in 2006 and one of 10 Best Book Picks for 2006 by San Diego's NPR station and In My Sister's Country, which was the Rocky Mountain News selected as one of 12 stellar debuts from 2002. Great. Lisa, that's that's super fun. I love all those. And then Alicia Abbott is the author of Fairyland, a memoir of my father, which was a New York Times book review editor's choice on ALA Stonewall. Oh, also an ALA Stonewall Award winner and a winner of the Madam Farrago pre-heroine in France. And I probably, I should have said that with a bad French accent. So uh, last year she was awarded an artist grant from the Massachusetts Cultural Council earlier this year. This is very exciting for Alicia. Uh, The film version of her memoir, Fairyland, premiered at Sundance and later this month will be showing at the Sarasota Film Festival. She currently teaches at Emerson College and leads the memoir incubator program at Grub Street. So both these folks have taught at Grub Street and they also teach at Emerson, which I've also uh, taught at. So really excited to have them both. Okay. Navigating reality and invention and fiction. Let's start with our fiction writer, Lisa Haynes, about the subject. Uh, Lisa, what has been your experience with dealing with these two modes? Why are you interested in how they come together and how do you handle it when they do? All right. So I thought I would start out and just read a short passage. This is from my fourth novel called When We Disappear. And this is a girl who is 17. She's a photographer and she's having a serious crush on someone. But underneath all of this is a level of trauma in her life. And so she experiences things through that lens. So I've had my share of lucid dreams. And often in that state, I can manipulate how I move, what I decide to do. I can drop into water and start swimming, turn a car around and drive off in the opposite direction. More often, I take to the air. Yet for all this fluid motion, I know we are earthbound as rocks. We are self-contained and tough as hard apples. An odd thing occurred, however, standing there with Ajay in that freezing hallway, something I hadn't experienced before. I I felt somehow tugged from myself, drawn out little by little, as if I possessed a lighter body inside my solid one. And that lighter body eased into him the way two chemicals mix in a dark room tray. I found myself breathing with him as if I were held for a second or two in his ribs. I stood inside him following the stream of thoughts soaking his brain. A lot of those thoughts were about trying to keep me from leaving and going upstairs. Thinking back, it was like those lightheaded moments brought on by skipped meals or too much sugar and coffee that became a habit in those days. Maybe the sensation lasted longer than I imagined. I'm not sure. Time had a way of distorting when I was around him. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. So I have always been fascinated 
about that boundary between the real and the unreal and that that area where we slip in between. And I think that that's incredibly true to life. So I started to jot down like, why, why would I be drawn to that? Why are we all drawn to that area of life? And to me, the tangible often triggers something intangible. Yeah. So for example, my list here is giving birth, sex, death, trauma, meditation, self-medication, including psychedelics for those who are out there doing that, illness, fever, sleep deprivation, staring at your eyes for a long time in a mirror. I remember doing that as a kid. Moments of love where we imagine there's a glow or a, an aura around our loved or beloved. And so I think um, to convey this state of otherworldliness, we often need the exact tangible details to make it real. Yeah. It can't be a fuzzy depiction of what it is to have that experience in my mind. Yeah. So here in the passage that you just read to us, what the tangible thing that's that's grounding it again is what in your mind? Well, the tangible thing is standing in the hallway just before that, that there's a, there's a very clear depiction of what he looks like, what the mailboxes look like, what the hallway looks like in this really funky apartment building in Chicago. And that it's that clarity, that crystal clarity that to my mind um, is a kind of launching point. Right into that otherworldly place. So using, so using a lot of those sensory details in the here and now, and I think a lot of people ignore that that stuff as well, but setting and how the person is actually a part of the setting. And then you're allowed to go into this very rich interiority, which was really quite complex and, and beautiful. And she's able to go many places in her mind. Um, in your mind, this is this similar to when we talk about interiority or does it jump even further than than that well in in this particular character's case she has a lot of flying dreams yeah and so in essence she had something happen to her when she was nine that was traumatic and it it involved among other things her body other people's bodies it's a car a terrible car crash and so it she can't stay she can't rest in her body yeah she continues to travel outward she always travels and so this but this is really rich and i think this is something that a lot of writers forget that they need to do and it's also about learning your character so it's your character is always in the present moment and you have these tangible things that ground the present moment and hopefully they're not i mean the book eventually has them not just standing in a hall you know <laughs> No. staring at each other but it but this creates a, a really important moment for her for reflection and so we talk about um the intention in the scene which is normally the intention of action so what does the person want to do um what what are they what do they uh want to say um and and the action the physical actions they take within the physical uh moments of the scene and that that propels the scene forward in terms of the plot 
But then people forget about also the pulse of the scene, which is basically your character's very naughty, very confused interior life. Um, and that interior life can take them elsewhere, everywhere, into all sorts of imagined places. And in and every moment that you're writing, you're carrying both of those through. And you should always know, well, where is my where's my character jumping through? What what are these other worlds um, and these imaginative places that they're jumping to in order to get away from the present? Um, and because I think everybody, every all characters do it. So so it just to me, this passage was just told me that Lisa really knew her character um, because she knows exactly where she's going to she's going to go. Um, and so really having both of those understandings of your characters and that can take a, a little bit of time. Like, how quickly did you understand that about your character, Lisa, that she would do this and that she would think this way or did it come automatically? Uh, it came through the process of entering kind of, for me, I write from a kind of vivid daydream. And so I don't plot anything out in advance. I have no, no idea what I'm going to do in the next chapter. That's usually where I need to take a long walk. Yeah. And I'm getting to know her as I go through this particular character. Since she's a photographer, she has a very precision mind too, in terms of what she observes so there's enormous uh, clarity, but again, we talk about that that idea of taking taking flight. And so I actually just love the process of getting to know my character as I go, right? And and seeing, you know, I feel like I'm entering her world. Yes, and it, and and I love that. So you go into this trance, but you it probably takes several passes too to really get to know her and be like, okay, this is who she is. That's that's the whole revision process. Okay, Alicia, who works primarily in memoir. So now we've just talked about a fiction writer who's allowing the character to move into this imaginative space, but having to use the tangible right in front of them. Um, Alicia, in memoir, how do you balance this? here and now tangible with the interiority and or how do you balance okay this is what happened to me um this these are the factual things and this is where i'm going to be able to give myself license to go into to to other um things and ideas um in the memoir that feel true to me but might not have actually happened or do you are you stickler about that well you know i think um Memoir and creative nonfiction are different than um, than journalism. I mean, the the nonfiction part of creative nonfiction um, requires us to, in some ways, to fact check what we can fact check and to use research and, and interviews to make a world um, come to life and to sort of check our memories. But often, when we're writing, we hit roadblocks um, where what we need to explore is beyond the reach of knowing. Um, is maybe in, involves um, two opposing versions of a story. There's sort of the way that um, one parent remembers it and the way another parent remembers it, and it predates your own birth, so you can't write about it with authority. But those areas of your of work still need exploring. And to say, well, there's different points of view, I'm just going to not go there, would sort of shortchange your own writing. And so... Um, I see uh, invention and specula speculation in creative nonfiction as a way to get beyond that and sort of go to a deeper place. And um, one way to think about it is um, plumping the skeletal facts with the flesh of imagination, 
which is um, something Brenda Miller uh, talks about in Tell It Slant. Um, and so that you have, um, by cueing to the reader, um, perhaps uh, this or perhaps that, or you can also cue to the reader, I'm imagining this, enables you to create a scene that has the vividness of fiction, but without breaking the pact of trust with your reader. And so um, there's, you know, for example, Maxine Hong Kingston in her um, essay, No Name Woman from Woman Warrior, um, she is compelled to tell the story of an aunt who was erased from the family memory and family record because of you know, the aunt supposed, you know, had extramarital affair. And so she was erased and she's given sort of the skeletal facts of the end of her life. But um, Maxine Hong Kingston wants to bring her back to life, um, believes that her story is worth knowing, but with the limits of what she can know, she imagines her way into her aunt's life by perhapsing and, um, and saying maybe, and, and in a way, occupying that, uh, making real that space again. And I think what's really valuable in that is that um, it's not what's sort of paramount. And again, what's different between um, journalism and creative nonfiction, it's not that you're getting at the truth. Here's the absolute truth. But here's a truth, um, right. an emotional truth um, that can that can go deeper. And then often is is sort of harder to to create. Yeah, yeah. But giving yourself that license. So that actually reminds me of because you will also find a lot of narrators in fiction that are even first person, what I call first person omniscient narrators that allow themselves to imagine themselves into other lives and other worlds. So Anne Enright's The Gathering is, if you've taken in my classes, you probably know that's one of my favorite novels. And so the main character imagines herself back into her grandmother's life um, and in all the other characters' lives and basically brings what she imagines feels like it actually happened. So she's she's cheating a little bit, uh, but you, you kind of have to, right, Alicia? Like, you say the perhaps and the imaginative, but if you keep reminding the reader, oh, I'm I'm creating this, I'm imagining. If you keep doing it every sentence or every paragraph, you probably kill it, right? No, you, you only you only need to do it a couple yeah. of times, and the reader is with you. And the thing is that it also this allows, um, you know, a richness and and point of view. It kind of reveals the desires and hopes of the per, of the of the character doing the imagining. I mean, in creative nonfiction that trust in the narrator is so important, but sometimes you trust the narrator more when they say, I don't know this, but I imagine this. Yeah. I don't know the, the demons that followed my father, but perhaps they were like these demons that follow me. And so that you can, you can become closer with the, um, the narrator and their sort of struggle to understand when they can um, be transparent to some degree without, you know, of, of what it, the limits of what they're knowing is. But then again, like once they just sort of signal to the reader, like once one or two perhapses or I imagines, you're ready to go with them and know, okay, this this may or may not have happened, but I I'm I'm on for the ride because this is really deep and interesting, and there's something that is truthful coming out of this. Like in a way, the truth is even the writer's vulnerability of, of the limits of their knowing. 
Right, exactly. Great. And Lisa, so are there other authors that are doing this sort of thing well that you really admire? So when you think about this in your own in your own fiction? Sure. I and and I also want to add, I'm taking heavy notes here as Alicia's talking. And I was just reading the um, nonfiction work by Murakami about his life as a novelist. And he talks about the idea that as novelists, we keep asking that question, perhaps this, or perhaps my character will go here, or perhaps this or that. Um, Lauren Groff in Matrix, she has these moments, uh, the main character in the 12th century has these moments of visions. Uh, Ocean Vong, On This Earth, We Are Briefly Gorgeous, Song for Night by Chris Abani, um, Morrison's Beloved, of course, Whitehead's Underground Railroad, No Violet Buliweo, uh, uh, Hitting Budapest, A Wonderful Story, and uh, Margot Livesey does this. There's a long list of people, and, and this is what I've often gra gravitated toward. Yeah, and so that's it's an interesting list too because you you also named well Ocean Vong's is is considered autofiction I guess right so he's really playing with that line um, and then Underground Railroad he's feeding off so much historical stuff and he then takes takes those his histories and alters it a little bit and puts it in his world. Um, in a way that you wouldn't expect. So you're kind of always questioning, is this real? Is this not? But but the rest of his book is so visceral um, that you just kind of go along, you absolutely go along with it. Um, and uh, I mean, are there any dangers, particularly in, in fiction or a memoir, and playing with this stuff too much, <laughs> um, do you find? Because you could go into the imaginative world, like Lisa, you could, that character could go off into her dreamscape, and then we would completely lose the book, I'm, I'm expecting. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's, you, you know, typically readers, editors, agents do not like dreams at all in, in fiction, and it is an area that can get very hazy and mushy, and that's not what you want, and you don't want to spend too long of time there. Um, you really have to feel like it's it has its own solidity to it. Right, right. Um, and then, but I, I always remind my writers that my writers, they're my writers, I own them. Um, the writers I work with uh, that fiction and nonfiction particular remember that you're working through a point of view because I think we forget that we get so used to film and television that we forget the power of the point of view and how that point of view warps everything on the page um and so that allows if you actually aren't allowing yourself to go into the the character's head and and allow them to alter the world you're actually losing one of the most important components of of, of fiction. Um, Alicia, in your teaching, do you, are you, I, I have a feeling you're oftentimes talking about like, how far can you go into the inventive? How close do you stick to the real? Because I think there's, there's probably a big discussion about this in memoir overall. I mean, definitely. I mean, I, as I said before, it's all about, um, maintaining the pact of trust with the reader, how important that is uniquely in creative nonfiction, but I'll find that some of my favorite writers, that do explore, um, you know, speculation in nonfiction are those who are also fiction writers and who feel 
um, they have a little bit more comfort in their ability to do that. So uh, Jasmine Ward, Joan, and Joan Wickersham, um, Carmen Maria Machado is another example of writers who um, will allow themselves some degree of invention as long as they signal to the reader, I'm inventing this part. Um, then I think you, and also Alex Marzano Lesnovich does it a lot in their writing as well. Um, it's certainly, there's this idea that, um, like we don't want to try to pass something off that's true, that's, that's false in such a way that the reader feels betrayed. And there's, you know, very famous writers who sort of exaggerated the, the depths of their misery to, um, you know, to get the, pages turning or to sell books like famously James um, Fry and um, A Million Little yes. Pieces. Yep. Um, but I, I kind of, I think that like we understand if a writer is exploring um, the suicide of their father as Joan Wickersham does in the Suicide Index um, and, and she's imagining and talking about his final moments, like we know that that's imagined. There's not an idea if she's saying, I am imagining this that she's trying to to betray us, um, and uh, you know. But it's in some ways you can, and as well, Jasmine Ward in, in *Men We Reap*. She has to write these portraits of these men that are not herself; that she doesn't have access to their interior um, lives or to their final moments. But she can, because she has lived so tightly in a community with them, she can um, lean on her own experience and say. You know, I don't know this, but I do know what this looked like for me. And I imagine it looked the same for him. And so there's a way that you can kind of toggle back and forth um, where you can flesh in uh, through imagining and putting the reader, creating a vivid scene, but again, without breaking that trust with the reader, without the reader thinking, oh, this person is trying to you know, betray me. Like we can see in some ways that act of imagination is vulnerability. And maybe that's where we feel betrayed is like, oh, this person is getting, you know, thinks that they have um, the, the authority to say this, but if they're kind of vulnerable in like the, you know, what it is that they don't know and then what they can imagine, then we give them a lot of license and um, and go with them. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I love that, that vulnerability. Um, because if if I think as an author of you are really trying to get the truth across, that, that, that you're really going for an honest portrait, however you get at it, however emotionally it happens, is the important thing. And versus playing uh, tricks on the reader or, or trying to do, oh, this is really cool, this looks really smart, um, those will have a tendency to feel manipulative and you can lose, lose your reader really quickly. Can um, I say curse words on this, um, on this podcast? Yes, yes, we can okay. say yeah, so um, Mary Carr, who wrote The Liars Club, um, she said, I mean, she has the the point of view of like, if you if I'm eating a sandwich and you tell me there's a tiny little piece of shit in that sandwich, I'm still eating a shit sandwich. Like she really is like, you can't be lying at all in, in the text. But again, like what, you know, if if we have an idea that, well, I have to I have to tell the truth, but like the way I remember something is different than the way someone else remembers it, or the truth is itself very slippery, and I and I'm not able to research it. Um, then uh, you know, then you can you can sort of be honest about um, well, these are different versions, and I'm not getting like I'm not telling 
I'm not trying to tell the truth, but this is the way that that I saw it. And this yeah. is what I know. And this is what I don't know. And to remember that it's creative nonfiction. So there's a creative aspect and you use creative ways to tell a truth. And sometimes you have to use, I think, forms of invention to tell the truth, essentially. Right. Excellent. Oh, and so, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I've always been fascinated by uh, the creation of dialogue in memoir. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if we're children and we're re recalling conversation, clearly we can't do that precisely. But all of the elements, that all of the, the memory of the visual in particular, sounds, all the sensory details, and suddenly we're, we're hearing that conversation again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I was going to ask you, Lisa, because um, someone in the chat mentioned, so you mentioned Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroood. Um, and But by my use of maybe saying that a lot of this imagination happens in interiority might have been a, a mistake because uh, Judith in the chat says Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad includes almost no interiority. So how is he... How is he playing with that invention and reality in that book without a lot of interiority? Well, he's he's making the Underground Railroad a a actual railroad, but it's in, again in that it's just there's a slight haziness. It's like I, I'm going into a, a altered state here uh, to convey something that's really critical and historically real but i'm i'm making it m even more tangible than simply describing it right I, i'm not sure if i'm capturing this correctly but um i think we're so caught in the horror of the perspective that we don't even and that that the horror of the perspective puts itself onto the world around her instead of instead of going inward a lot um and then creates something tangible out of that, out of that horror, um, and mixes again, the, the imaginative and the real in, in a way that a lot of writers are doing these days, really moving away from the realist mode, um, that has been taught in MFA programs and, and in schools for a very long time. We're really moving away from that. And some of the authors that, um, always intrigued me were Borges and Marquez, Huxley, Kafka, John Fowles. Um, and Borges, you know, was wonderful at an invention, making up tomes that didn't exist and so forth. Yeah. So he, he was conceptual, but at the same time, did those conceptions in ways that you felt you could walk into the world that he was creating. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Cam in the chat also asked, can you elaborate on the point that since editors don't like dreams and novels, that a dream has to have its own solidity? I mean, dreams in it are problematic. They can be problematic. Right. They can become buckets for I'm I'm just I'm going to go into a hazy place now and indulge me. It's it's if I spent the next half hour telling this beautiful audience about a dream I had last night, and I have some pretty elaborate dreams. I think we would lose a few people after a while. <laughs> yeah. I also find that the problem with dreams is that they're too on the nose. So let's say, um, I don't know, someone has lost their child. Um, and then the dream is that their child is calling out their name from the depths of the, you know, 
I that that could be a dream, but it feels a little planted. She's worried about her child. Um, so so you want to be careful about inventive dreams that are trying to get across worries or psychologies that are a little too um, that answer a little bit too closely and make, make probably make a little bit too much sense um, in terms of the character. Um, and, and Alicia in a chat, I, I, what what you're writing in the um, here, I think is really interesting. Sometimes lifting off from the floor of the reel can also reveal character in trauma. Do you want yeah. to talk about that? Yeah, just that, um, you know, the looking even at um, Joan Didion's My Year of Magical Thinking. Um, when we, you know, that that's writing about the death of her husband um, and sort of the magical thinking of imagining he's still there. And um, and certainly with other characters, if they're undergoing a specific trauma to sort of convey their internal state would be to um, to see the, you know, the way that they move out of reality in moments that that would be unbelievable, but is actually true to their emotional state or sometimes in trauma, there are characters who disassociate, who suddenly go from first person into, into third person and imagining themselves in a different um, place to, un, to withstand something traumatic. So that um, that way of, of using, um, of leaning into the unreal or the invention could be a way to accurately um, show an, an interior emotional state. Exactly, exactly. And so I think basically today, I think fiction and nonfiction, they're playing around with these lines quite a lot. Um, and the and their lines are blurring and, and both can borrow from the other other form. Um, and this is becoming much more common and even expected today. But as long as you do it with with some honesty and, and treating your reader as someone intelligent that you want to give something emotionally true to no matter what, I think is the, the important thing to follow. Okay, I'm going to have to let these go folks go and go into their own imaginative space um, so they can get some writing done today. Uh, everyone, you can find our full March writing challenge schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates and you can take part in the discussion there as well. You can also find the podcast version of these webinars on your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that other people can find us. All right, ladies, you're going to be able to get some writing done today. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm going to be writing from a hair salon chair for a while. but <laughs> Use whatever you can, wherever you're at. I love that. All right, Thanks everybody. Thanks for waking me up so early in the morning. She's just going to have all day to write. Okay, everyone, you have all day to write. Thank you very much. Good luck. There isn't nothing here at all.